Welcome to Dream Nation Love. I'm your host, Yulia, and you're listening to part one of our Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Relatives series. The strong woman song you're hearing in the background is performed by Nicole Matthews, Guadalupe Lopez, and Angelica Ellery. As part of Nicole's TED Talk called How Indigenous Values Can Help Sexual Violence Victims Heal. Nicole is the executive director of Minnesota Indians Women Health Sexual Assault Coalition, and Angelica is the membership and outreach coordinator. Guadalupe is the executive director of Violence Free Minnesota, and I want to thank all three of them for kindly sharing their performance with the podcast. This podcast has been so difficult to produce. I've been working on this for the last six years, and it's finally coming together this past year, and it's been the heaviest, heaviest podcast that I've ever done. I would not be able to bring you these episodes without Melissa Spence. She's my editor and producer, and she is an Anishinaabe Ojibwe. She's enrolled in Lake Manitoba First Nation of Canada. Uh, Melissa is also a voiceover artist and a co-host of Indigenous Vision Podcast. She's an amazing editor, just an amazing all-around human being, and I'm so glad that we found each other to be able to put this project together. Indigenous Vision is also a collective of Native professionals empowering the future of Indigenous communities in Canada and the U.S., and they do so through educational resources for environmental and cultural preservation. They do a lot of work for missing and murdered Indigenous women as well. So definitely check out Melissa Spence. Uh, find her at Melissa Audio on Instagram. And I am forever grateful to Melissa for her help, friendship, and knowledge. I first heard about missing and murdered Indigenous women from my sister-in-law. She told me about the crisis while we were sitting around a campfire in Nespers County, Idaho. Our conversation began when I mentioned seeing posters in Spokane, Washington Airport urging people to keep an eye out for human trafficking. I've never encountered similar posters during my travels. These posters in Spokane were sometimes pasted on the inside of the bathroom door. And trying to process the information, you know, when you're in a very intimate, small space, really made the message even more alarming. After I spoke to my sister-in-law about it, just hearing about it from her revealed a deeper layer. She told me about the missing and murdered indigenous women, boys, two spirits, and men that were going missing. And it was happening all in the U.S., especially on the West Coast and the Northwest, as well as Canada. Canada has dealt with it a little better in the last few years. They have a lot more experience with it. If you want to learn about the Canadian crisis, please Google the Highway of Tears. I will not be going into the Canada crisis on this podcast because it's simply too broad of an issue. There are just too many stories to tell, and I can barely cover the U.S. story alone. Again, I, I just couldn't believe that women were going missing in the U.S. and Canada, and the story was not national news. And as the night went on, I kept on asking her more questions, just question after question. Eventually, MMIW just started to feel like an iceberg. The peak being the women, and under the surface, there were just so many factors and systems that contributed to the women being missing. And the search for answers culminated in the special series that you're hearing right now. My goal with these episodes is to amplify Indigenous voices who are doing the MMIW work, as well as creating more awareness around the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Basically, my goal is to just be a witness to the stories and share them with the world. And uh, my dream is that after you listen, you'll have a better understanding of everything that is happening. And this is a story about trauma, trauma perpetuating itself through culture, both for the indigenous and the non-indigenous communities. This was started by colonialism and its cycle through the boarding schools. 
And now the trauma lives in the man camps, the men working in the extraction industries. The trauma is also surfacing both on the reservation as well as urban cities. This trauma creates so much chaos and it takes away so many loved ones. And trauma begets trauma. And my hope is that with this collective knowledge, we can help prevent another person from going missing, maybe even give them the tools to escape, perhaps give a family the tools to conduct a search that forces the authorities to pay attention. Maybe even help provide tools for someone to deal with loss or give someone the strength to walk away from a domestic abuse situation. A little bit of background on uh, Missing and Murder Indigenous Women's International Day. It's May 5th of every year, and it's the Day of Awareness. The National Week of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls leads up to it starting April 29th and ends on May 5th. So to mark the occasion, people often wear red to bring attention to the crisis and the girls. There are 574 federally recognized tribes in the U.S., and like I said, it's nearly impossible for me to cover all the missing and murdered Indigenous women stories of every tribe throughout this podcast. I've only highlighted a few. I wish I could cover every one of them. I think it would take me many, many lifetimes. The color red differs in meaning from tribe to tribe sometimes, too. There are just so many different differentiations, basically, in tribes. And red is chosen because it's a color that transcends the physical world into one of the spirit. The color can be seen by the ancestors and to those who passed, and the color calls on them to help guide the missing back. People also mark the day with a red handprint across the face to show solidarity with MMIW. Sometimes you see it as a black handprint, too. The mark represents the silence of the missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives, the silence of the victims, the law enforcement, and the people who remain silent while knowing who the perpetrators are. Professional runner Jordan Marie Daniel, who is on the podcast as well, was the first to bring attention to the handprint at the 2019 Boston Marathon. She dedicated her run to 26 missing and murdered indigenous women, and during our interview, Jordan Marie reminded me that May 5th was selected since it was the birthday of Hannah Harris. Hannah was a member of the Northern Cheyenne tribe and in 2013 was reported missing in Lame Deer, Montana. Lots of women go missing in Montana, by the way. There are women being stolen from Missoula. Hannah went out to celebrate Independence Day and never came home. She was a young mother. She had a brand new baby and her disappearance raised alarms in her family. When the relatives approached the local police for help, the officers did not take the case seriously. Hannah's body was found five days later. She had been raped and murdered at the age of 21, leaving behind a baby and a family that loved her. The special series is focused on a few of the stories. The stories are data. To bring the data into perspective, I want to talk a little bit about statistics. Currently in the U.S., indigenous people make up only 2% of the population. Let that sink in. Only 2% percent of the whole entire population. Yet Native women and girls are murdered at a rate that's 10 times higher than other ethnicities. More than half of the women and girls, over 55 percent, have experienced sexual violence in their lifetime, with four out of five experiencing violence. For such a small segment of the population, these numbers are staggering. As of 2016, the National Crime Information Center reported 5,712 cases of missing Native women and girls and they don't include the missing men, boys, and two spirits. There are a number of cases that have been reported. Many others remain uncounted due to an inaccurate or 
non-existent record keeping, as well as mislabeling of ethnicity due to clerical errors or other mistakes that are caused on purpose so the investigation won't even begin or continue. And to contrast these really high numbers of 5,712 cases, the U.S. Department of Justice Missing Persons Database has only 116 cases that are registered. To make the matter even more complicated, many of the murders are committed by non-Native people on Native-owned land, making it hard for tribal courts to prosecute non-Natives. The investigations often get stopped in their tracks due to a lack of communication between tribal, state, local, and federal law enforcement. And oftentimes, cases are not pursued due to jurisdiction matters and racism that exists basically towards Indigenous cultures. Between 2005 and 2009, the U.S. Attorney declined to prosecute 67% of cases surrounding abuse involving Indigenous Americans. Now, with this podcast, I'm bringing forward only a few stories, as I mentioned. Stories from every side so you can really understand the issue a bit deeper. Please share these episodes with a friend so more people can be aware of the crisis and hopefully we can prevent it. And hopefully together we can kind of help change the outcome of many of women's lives, as well as boys and men and two spirits. On this podcast, I got to speak with many Indigenous people, and the voice that you're about to hear next is from Mary Catherine Nagel. She's an attorney specializing in tribal sovereignty of Native nations and peoples. Mary Catherine Nagel was born in Oklahoma and is enrolled in the Cherokee Nation. She's also one of the country's most produced Native American playwrights, and she's also the executive director of the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Her plays, just like her work, are focused on history and tribal law and the history of the indigenous people. I'm so glad I got to speak with Mary Catherine Nagel. I think this is a really powerful introduction to give you an idea of who the missing and murdered indigenous women are and how we kind of got to this point. Thank you for joining. And my first question is, you know, what are some factors that contribute to the missing and murdered indigenous women crisis? There's several factors that contribute to the crisis. I mean, the first and foremost reality of the crisis is simply that the United States has a culture that promotes violence against Native women. That began with the inception of the United States. Christopher Columbus is someone who most Americans are taught in grade school to celebrate. We have a federal holiday named after him. And he bragged about murdering Native women in his journals. He bragged about raping Native women. He bragged about kidnapping them. And so violence against Native women is something that, you know, has been practiced by our most celebrated, quote unquote, founding fathers. And it was practiced by the U.S. military. If you look at the history of, for instance, the Cherokee Trail of Tears, right? You had Indian agents and, and military soldiers recording in their journals that they were raping Cherokee women along the Trail of Tears. So there is historic precedent for it, and we have yet to find that moment in the United States, in our culture, where we stand back and we say, actually, that was wrong, and we shouldn't continue to do it today. And the other thing is, is that our culture really portrays Native women as just sex objects. You know, Pocahontas, instead of being portrayed as an incredible Native girl who survived a lot and en ended up being a victim, she was murdered. She was also raped and kidnapped all before the age of 21, and she was a child when she was raped. People wear Pocahontas costumes at Halloween. So as long as our women who have been raped and murdered are treated as jokes or Halloween costumes, the violence against our women will not be taken seriously because that dehumanization of us 
is what allows the culture to be insensitive to the human tragedy of when a Native woman or girl is murdered. And that's why when someone like Gabby Petito is murdered, the whole country is very upset and wants to talk about how we're going to figure out who murdered her. And when 700 other Native women are murdered in the same state in Wyoming, the FBI does nothing, the American media doesn't care, and no one bats an eyelash because that's just another Pocahontas, right? So we have to teach Americans to rehumanize Native women and to stop seeing them as sexual objects, but instead to see them as real people, which we are, right? And the other issue is the legal framework. You have a legal framework in the United States where in 1978, the United States Supreme Court eliminated tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. And that's a huge crisis for many reasons, but one of which is that we know from the U.S. Department of Justice that the majority of violent crimes committed against Native women are committed by non-Indians. Native women suffer the highest rates of sexual assault, domestic violence, and homicide in the United States. So we know as a result of the Supreme Court's decision in Oliphant that tribal nations cannot prosecute the majority of violent crimes committed against their citizens. So it's no surprise that we have a missing and murdered indigenous women's crisis based on all of these issues that have yet to be addressed or solved in the United States. I was reading something that the FBI passes up on a lot of the cases too. They're selective about, I don't know if you know a little bit more about it. Like I I don't know that much about it, but I just, um, I saw some stats on it. All I know is that they have refused to investigate all of the cases that I work on. They refuse to talk to all the families that I represent, and they just won't even talk to the parents. They won't even. So imagine being a mother of a little girl living on a reservation who's and your daughter's murdered. Wouldn't you like to talk to law enforcement and say, here's who she said she was going to see that day, or here's who I think maybe murdered my daughter? Oftentimes, our family members have key information related to the homicide of their loved one. That's why Law Enforcement 101, you always talk to the family. Also, P.S., sometimes the family should be considered, they should always be considered a suspect until they're ruled out. Unfortunately, sometimes family members kill people, right? Intimate partner violence. The FBI refuses to talk to Native families when their loved ones are murdered. They won't even investigate. They don't take it seriously, and they refuse to investigate. Our families suffer multiple tragedies. Of course, first and foremost is the loss of their loved one. But the other traumatic reality they experience is being told by law enforcement that no one cares. Like, no one cares that your loved one has been murdered. No one cares. And that's really, really painful. How many cases do you have right now that have been turned away? I have seven that I'm working on. That I, where I represent the family and where I have asked the FBI to step in and investigate. And they have um, either, most of them, they won't even talk to me. I did call and get one of the officers. I kind of caught him off guard. Uh, I got the front office to transfer me to his phone. And he just proceeded to, to just say some really mean things on the phone to me. And he was very rude. This is a case where actually the young, it was a young Native boy who, who, was, who died. And he died at the hands of BIA law enforcement. We have multiple eyewitnesses who saw him. He was in, let me just, this is Braven Glenn is his name. He died on the Crow Reservation a year ago in November. He was involved in a high-speed chase. Now, we don't know why. Uh, Law enforcement has refused to tell his mother, Blossom Old Bull, why there was a high-speed chase. Uh, We've heard that maybe drugs were involved. But do drugs really necessitate taking someone's life? And they, the law enforcement were chasing him at high speed. And because they were engaged in a high speed chase, he drove head on into a train. 
And upon impact, his car exploded and there was some fire, but multiple eyewitnesses saw him lying by the side of the road crying for help for 30 minutes. And BIA law enforcement watched him die. And no one called an ambulance. Actually, I have uncovered records that an ambulance was called and then BIA canceled it three minutes later. They refused to talk to the family, tell the family what happened. And when I filed a case file or a claim with the missing and murdered unit at the Department of the Interior under Secretary Deb Holland, that unit told me that that case had been transferred to the FBI because the FBI handles all cases under color of law where someone dies in law enforcement's hands. So like George Floyd's murder, right? These things get transferred to the FBI. Well, then I called the FBI and they told me they would not be investigating this case because usually, you know, when natives die at the hands of law enforcement, it's usually not because law enforcement did anything wrong, but it's just because native people are dangerous. And he wouldn't even talk to the mother. He was very rude. He yelled at me and he said, I'm not going to investigate a case just because you tell me I have to. And I said, I'm not telling you you have to. I'm asking you to just talk to the victim's mom. Imagine if your child died in the hands of law enforcement. Wouldn't you want someone from a law enforcement agency to just have a conversation with you and and just hear you out? Just have a conversation and they won't even have that conversation. On the Blackfeet Reservation, Lindsay Whiteman and Amy Whitegrass were both murdered. Everyone knows who murdered them. You know why? Uh, Because there were some eyewitnesses who saw the car fleeing the scene, but also the car being driven by the two murderers left the Blackfeet Reservation and was pulled over by police in Great Falls, Montana. And Amy's dead body shot through the head was in the back seat of their car. Now, they had killed Lindsay. They hit and run because when they shot Amy, she tried to stop them and they ran her over. They ran over Lindsay. So, but Amy's dead body was in the car. There's no question who killed Amy and Lindsay. The FBI has refused to investigate. We've asked them on numerous occasions to speak with the family, to speak with Erlina Oldperson, who is Lindsay's mother. They've refused. And in fact, what they did do was a long time after she passed, when they decided they were going to officially close the case without ever doing a formal investigation, they showed up at Lindsay's brother's place of work and the FBI walked in. And while he was at work, handed him his sister's clothing and said, here's your sister's clothes the day she was wearing the day she died. We're closing this case. And that was their communication with the family. This is how the FBI treats our Native families. These are human rights violations. These are violations of the federal trust duty and responsibility. The FBI is an agency of the federal government, owes to tribal nations and their citizens, and they get away with it. And they get away with it because our president, Joe Biden, lets them do it. And they get away with it because our Congress doesn't hold FBI accountable. And because Attorney General Merrick Garland doesn't hold them accountable. And it's very sad and it needs to stop. And I was going to say, as a lawyer, what cases are you seeing of missing and murdered indigenous women? I know there are a lot of boys going missing and men as well. So I, I try to involve everybody by saying, you know, women with an X, because it's also affecting the two spirit community as well. I was going to ask you what you've seen so far as a lawyer, you know, the families that you've been interacting with, you know, who are you seeing going missing? And and also, who do you see committing the crimes, if you see that? You know, primarily, the, the vast majority of missing and murdered Indigenous people are Native women and girls, but our two-spirit relatives are murdered as well. And so are our men and our boys. So it's really all people. And they're, you know, indigenous people are murdered at higher rates than any other population in the United States. It is quite often Native women and girls who live on tribal lands 
but our Native women, our Native relatives are murdered in urban areas too. And as Abigail Echohawk has pointed out from the Urban Indian Health Institute, oftentimes, unfortunately, those murders are not even recorded as a murder of a Native person because the urban law enforcement doesn't write down that the person was Native who was murdered. And so that's been a huge problem too. The lives of our boys are being taken as well. I gave the example earlier of Raven Glenn's case and who's murdering them. So quite often it's actually law enforcement. Native people are more likely to be murdered than law enforcement than any other population in the United States. For instance, in Braven Glenn's case, right? He was murdered in a high-speed chase that really should never have been undertaken because his only crime was drug use. There's a case uh, that just took place on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in December where a Native gentleman who was handcuffed and was not threatening anyone, that he, they had him handcuffed and he fell down because they were trying to force him down some stairs. And when he fell down, they shot and killed him. So we have a lot of Native people who get murdered by law enforcement, particularly BIA law enforcement, but state law enforcement too. And sometimes, unfortunately, our tribal law enforcement. I have cases where, and this is not uncommon, a, a lot of cases our Native women are being murdered by their intimate partners. And in a lot of cases, there were multiple calls, 911 calls for help in domestic violence situations before the homicide, and they were ignored. And in several cases, the reasons they were ignored is because the white man perpetrator is best friends with the county sheriff. And that county sheriff is not going to put his buddy behind bars. And that's usually what's taking place in border towns or just off the reservation. And it, you know, it's just the case that if you're not on a reservation, if you're off tribal lands, then the tribal nation doesn't have jurisdiction. It really is the state or local county that has that jurisdiction. And they oftentimes choose to not exercise it, again, because they're protecting a friend of theirs. You know, we also see cases where non-Indians come onto tribal lands and murder Native women and girls. Uh, that was certainly the case of Lindsay Whiteman and Amy Whitegrass, and then drive off the reservation like they did with Amy's dead body still in the car. That's where we need the FBI because they're the only ones with jurisdiction to criminally investigate. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office is the only one with jurisdiction to prosecute. But what can the U.S. Attorney's Office do when the FBI refuses to investigate? So it's a real, real tragedy. So with this podcast, I'm trying to figure out what can be done to help reduce the number of MMIW cases. Like, can we put some laws through? Can we create more awareness? So a couple things have to happen. I mean, first and foremost, tribal jurisdiction has to be fully restored so that tribal nations have full stop jurisdiction over anyone who comes onto tribal lands and commits a crime. Not this, you know, haphazard, well, this crime, but not that crime. And Congress should be applauded for what they did in VAWA 2013 and VAWA 2022. But if the United States government, if President Biden, if anyone in Congress if any member of Biden's cabinet cares about this crisis, missing and murdered indigenous persons, they will advocate for a full Oliphant fix. The other thing that needs to happen is the FBI has a federal trust duty and responsibility to investigate these murders. And the U.S. Attorney's Office has a federal trust duty and responsibility to prosecute them. Attorney General Merrick Garland needs to ensure that the FBI investigates these murders. If the FBI needs more staffing, training, resources, then make it happen and Congress needs to make it happen. Whatever kind of appropriations needs to happen, needs to happen. But we can't sit around and say, well, let's have a committee and talk about it while the FBI is just not investigating the crimes. In Lindsay Whiteman's situation, we talked to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Montana. You want to know why they're not prosecuting the murder of Lindsay Whiteman, even though everyone knows who murdered her? Because the FBI didn't investigate it. And he said to us, he said, I'm very sorry 
that this family is going through this trauma because I would love nothing more than to prosecute the person who murdered her, but I've got no case file. The FBI didn't give me a file with evidence in it. They didn't really do a full investigation. And I, as U.S. attorney, can't bring a case if I'm not going to, you have to prove to the jury, right, beyond reasonable doubt. How can you do that if the FBI didn't investigate the homicide? Even though you ask anyone, right, in that area, in that community, who murdered Lindsay Whiteman, they will tell you. In fact, you know, one of the two individuals who uh, murdered her later went on to burglarize off the reservation a non-Native family uh, and then ended up being prosecuted by the state and taken to jail for that crime. But, you know, that's the other thing, too, we don't talk about is that, you know, sometimes a lot of times these criminals aren't just murdering Native women and girls. And so it just means that when those homicides are not investigated and prosecuted, it just means other people are going to be harmed, too, and victimized as well. Really, it is the entire community's public safety that's at risk here from the lack of investigation and prosecution. You know, I'm, I'm also wondering, like, how does the relationship between the land and the law leave Indigenous women vulnerable to abuse? Well, we've always understood our connection to the land, right? We are in balance with the land. We come from the land. The land is our mother. We originate in the land. We go back to the land. It's all a cycle, right? That's something we've always understood as Native women. That also was understood by those forces that wanted to take our lands. And so that is why our women became targets of the colonizing forces that wanted to conquer tribal nations. So that's why the Spanish armies targeted Native women. That's why the U.S. military targeted Native women. You look at what happened at the Sand Creek Massacre, right? Those U.S. soldiers came in. They raped Native women. They murdered pregnant women. They pulled out Native women's genitalia and put them on sticks and paraded around with them. Women were targeted by these colonizing forces because they understood that if you wipe out women, you wipe out a tribal nation. They have no future without their women, right? Because they don't have any future children or citizens. And if you don't, if you wipe out their women, you can conquer their lands because they will simply cease to exist as a people and as a nation. And that is why our women have been historically targeted by militaries, right? By conquering forces that has created a culture that supports violence against native women. And that has spilled over and carried over into, you know, things like extractive industries. And we've seen really high rates of violence against native women in areas with high, high rates of extractive industries, high, high footprints of that nature, I think that there is a direct connection between a disrespect for the land and a disrespect for our women. And that's why you see such high rates of violence against Native women, you, for instance, in the Bakken, right, where there are high levels of extractive industries. Right. I, I was going to ask you a little bit more about the tribal, state, and federal laws and how they affect the MMIW cases. Like I know we just touched upon the federal government not investigating the laws, but I was wondering if you can kind of set up like a brief overview for people who might not be aware of how the laws interact with each other. Sure. So tribes historically, before white folks showed up here, exercised jurisdiction over their land. And so if you came onto let's say Cherokee lands, right? And you raped a Cherokee woman, you would be prosecuted by Cherokee Nation. Now, prosecution may not have taken the form of what we think of in a Western court system, but there would have been justice. Justice would have been carried out and there would have been ramifications to hold someone accountable for that crime, right? 
when the United States and the states came into existence, it had to be worked out who had jurisdiction over what crime and how. So, for instance, in 1832, a case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, Worcester versus Georgia, because Georgia wanted to exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian American citizens on Cherokee lands. And the Supreme Court said, no, Georgia, you don't have any jurisdiction over Cherokee Nation lands. The only sovereign who has jurisdiction on Cherokee Nation lands is Cherokee Nation. And that was the law in 1832. Fast forward, and because of laws that Congress has passed and different decisions from the United States Supreme Court, we now have a situation so that if you're on tribal lands, who has jurisdiction over what crime could be the tribe, the state, or the federal government, depending on various factual scenarios, including the identity of the victim, the identity of the perpetrator, and the status of the land where the crime is committed. And what that means is that, you know, when it comes to safety for Native women and girls today, it is important to work with all three sovereigns, your tribal government, your state government, and the federal government, to ensure that the right laws are in place so that, you know, people who commit these crimes against our, our Native people are held accountable. And it's a crazy patchwork of jurisdictions and laws, and it does make things difficult. But yeah, we really, as Native people, have to interact with all three sovereigns. So as you can tell, the land jurisdiction issue is really complicated. But the story gets even more complex when you start looking at how MMIW cases are related to the land itself, in both urban and rural settings. The story is even at times linked to extraction industries, and for people who are not familiar with extraction industries, these are industries that go into states like Nevada, go into states like Minnesota, and they set up man camps. And the problem with these man camps is that they are usually in rural locations, which are often close to rural places like the reservations. I did a little bit more digging, and I found out that in Minnesota, Senator Mary Kunesh created the MMIWG Task Force as well as a report, and I reached out to speak with her to learn a little bit more about their findings. Now, the task force takes a deep look into the root causes, systemic problems, and potential solutions to the crisis, and it's available for everyone to read online as well, and you can Google it and you can find it. I'll have a link to it in the podcast when it's published. Um, and I wanted to speak with Senator Kunish to see if I could learn a little bit more about the connection and the terrain, and just about what's happening in Minnesota. So um, this is our conversation, and um, there'll be a little bit more from Senator Kunesh uh, later on in the podcast as well. This is just one excerpt of our talk. I would say the the biggest thing that I have learned is the complexity of a government and jurisdiction on Indian land. Because of the complication, you know, our, our, our reservations, our Indian communities, in that way, they are, they are sovereign nations, and they have the right to make decisions around their community and to ensure that the citizens within their uh, tribal communities are safe. For so long, tribes were not allowed to have their own police force or to monitor the comings and goings of what was going on on their nations. They just didn't have the resources. They didn't have the money. They didn't have trained individuals. They didn't have the equipment or the tools that they needed. So oftentimes it, it was sort of just free and easy on Indian land because there was nobody who was going to look out for those that had been victims of crimes. 
that was, I knew a little, again, a little bit about that and understanding the, the very complexity of jurisdiction. So is it tribal police? Is it county police? Is it um, state police? Is it uh, our federal investigators? Who is supposed to be responsible for looking into these disappearances and the violence? And it gets very confusing. And because of lack of resources all these hundreds of years, um, it's been continuing to go on. You asked about the connection to man camps, and man camps are communities of men that pop up most often where there are extraction of minerals from our lands. So oil and, and, and uranium mines, all of those sort of things um, draw a huge number of men to a, a, a very small area. Of course, not all of these men are bad men, but there are always some. Uh, when you have hundreds, if not thousands of men who have time on their hands, who have money in their pocket, are far away from their family, maybe because of the location of where these extraction uh, sites usually are, they're way out in the middle of nowhere, so there's nothing to do. The violence uh, against our women and especially our Native women, because oftentimes that's where the reservations are located, out in the middle of nowhere, that violence is, rises in pretty serious numbers. And so as that violence increases, there has been a lack of, of really paying attention to that. I would say that has a lot to do with the industry itself. Now, here in Minnesota, uh, we had Canadian Enbridge Line 3 uh, coming through our northern Minnesota. And originally, that pipeline was to go through some of the most fragile ecosystems up there, as well as through wild rice lakes where many, where our native tribes, you know, harvest that food to live on for the, the winter. And it's also an economic item that they are able to earn money on. So when we were going through the permitting process, Native women came and, and testified and said, we don't want that line. We know what happens when, when these lines come through. We know there's going to be issues around violence and uh, sex trafficking, increase in drugs, and all of those sort of things. And they were kind of poo-pooed at that hearing. In fact, they were mocked and ridiculed to the point where some of them were in tears. And, uh, and Bridge said, oh, no, our men won't do that. We will train them not to do that and that sort of thing. But just this year, there were two sexting operations in northern Minnesota. In one of them, there were six men that were charged with uh, sex trafficking, looking to purchase, uh, you know, especially Native women. And in another, uh, there were six men that were arrested within both of those events there were men uh, that were employed by Enbridge who were uh, arrested. And so it, it just proved, I mean, the women said, this is what happens. This will happen. They were, you know, denied, you know, uh, or, you know, made fun of, and then it happened. And so we know that this is definitely the case. Because right, whoever's creating the terror is outside of the community. So you have to make the outside community aware of it because, they might be related to the perpetrators. Because right now we're talking about the women and the men are just completely like not included in the, in the conversation. But we're not shaming the men that are creating this. This is not something that just happens to women just, just because they're walking and some mysterious entity comes along. These are men, usually repeat offenders. And we have to really just 
put a focus on the companies that they work for, put a focus on a law enforcement that's just slapping them on the hand sometime and, and really put the pressure on them as well. Yep. When we were having hearings at the Capitol on this, it has to go from, you know, different committee to different committee to different committee. And there was a hearing in public safety. And after hearing about all of this, somebody asked, you know, like, well, who is doing this? I mean, why is this happening? Who is doing this? And the answer is men, (laughs) pure and simple. It's men. But there was um, a county attorney that said they had studied this a little bit within Minnesota. And they found that the profile of a man who was purchasing sex or was uh, caught in uh, sex stings, it was a a white man, mid-30s, had uh, disposable income, was also a husband and a father. And that is the profile of what they found. So it's not these nefarious, you know, kind of people that, that are, you know, lurk in the corners or, you know, hide in the streets or whatever. It is white men with lots of money on, in their hands and, you know, are, are willing to pay for that sort of thing. And, and our poor community members that are easy prey because of, a, you know, the, the socioeconomic situation that they're in, homeless, they're ill, addiction, whatever the case may be, self-medicating because of their painful uh, lifestyle. It, it, it's, it's a real societal issue. A few months later, I reached out to Amber Crody, who's a delegate of the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation is one of the largest Indian reservations in the U.S. Located in New Mexico, the state has the highest rate of MMIW cases with 660 people missing since 2014. Now, I don't have the number of people who are two spirits that are missing, but I did find out that out of the 660, 287 of which were women, and 373 were male. I wanted to speak with Delegate Crody because recently New Mexico established an MMIW task force similar to that in Minnesota, and I really wanted to learn more about the crisis in New Mexico and what their experience was especially when it came to perpetrators. I think there's so much focus on the women in the MMIW story, which is so important because because the story is about the women. But I also wanted to kind of like flip the coin and learn more about the men who are committing the crimes. come from Sheep Springs, here on the Navajo Nation, and I'm a council delegate and I chair the Sexual Assault Prevention Subcommittee. Um, In the work that we've done advocating on the ground, really speaking to our families, in 2016, we lost Ash and Mike. She was our 12-year-old relative who had just returned home, and while she was playing with her brother, was persuaded to go into a stranger's van And unfortunately, he took her and assaulted her and um, killed her violently. What happened to Ashton just shook the Navajo Nation like to its core. So as parents, as leadership, as community members, uh, we all gathered to help support the family in not only looking for Ashlyn, and that raised issues in terms of the active Amber Alert on Navajo Nation and what happens when one of our children go missing and how law enforcement responds and ultimately looks for uh, the child. Uh, what we also had to do is help be part of the search teams. And we did recover Ashlyn the next day. And so her family 
asked that we continue to use her story as an educational tool, as an awareness tool, and as a way for us to fight for justice here on the Navajo Nation so that the Amber Alert can be fully developed. And also in that same thread, uh, supporting families who are going and healing through, surviving through their violence and how they need the support when one of their relatives go missing. And so we got together, when I say we, the Missing and Murdered and their Relatives team, it's a collective of nonprofits, myself as a council delegate with the support of the Navajo Nation Council. We've partnered with different universities. We work with our Indian Health Service Injury Prevention Program. Uh, we have on-the-ground advocates who fundraise to be part of the search efforts, and we continue to like raise awareness and keep not only our law enforcement accountable tribal leadership and our federal partners. They have a uh, what's unique about uh, working within Indian country or Native nations is we do have jurisdiction issues, but we also are a treaty tribe. And so the federal government has obligation to keep us safe here on our land. And so that's a uniqueness, but it also is a challenge Then we have to deal with different layers of jurisdiction. And so that's what has got us to this point in terms of uh, the Missing and Murdered Dine Relatives Collective. And so we've been able to testify in front of the U.S. Senate Indian Affairs Commission. We've testified at tribal consultations with the Department of Interior, with the U.S. Department of Justice, and we're preparing to speak in front of the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So as families speak out and we create the safe space, as tribal leadership, my role and responsibility then is to carry their songs and carry their stories of sorrow and up to the federal level so that they can receive um, support here on the ground. So that is the work that we've been doing here on Navajo Nation. It's very survivor-centered, family-focused, but I do want to say there's also the Navajo Nation government is a parallel but separate initiative, and they are just starting to organize and understand what the families are going through and providing that support. So we've stepped out to not only provide support to our families here on the Navajo Nation, but as a state task force member on the data subcommittee is providing what information we have learned and what are some of the best practices so recently, this last legislative session with New Mexico, one of Miski Yavitse, who's part of uh, Missing and Murdered Diné Relatives as and a volunteer with and founder of Navajo Missing Persons Updates, made a recommendation of creating a Missing Persons Day. And this would be a day where families could come and receive updates and give updates and also just create a safe space where they can collectively heal together and take care of one another. So that is some of the work that we've seen that we've heard from the families. And then it's been able to scale up to impact federal policies and actions at the state level. And we continue to do that work at, at the tribal Navajo Nation level. I was just going to ask you what data you're seeing in regards to missing people in the Navajo Nation? Because I know the numbers are coming up for men as well, and obviously two spirits, but um, just people who are going missing and also the people who are perpetrating the crime. Great question. So, and this is a different story here on Navajo Nation. And 
we continue to support, you know, the narrative on non-Native offenders. But what we see on Navajo, because of our size and our geographic location, and just the high number of interpersonal violence that are happening in our communities and with each other, we continue to see that the perpetrators of violence are either someone who is in an intimate relationship, acquaintances. It's very rare to see maybe a stranger being part of this. And so in some of our prevention work, and we looked at is we really wanted to not only boost up like self-defense type so people feel safe or that they can defend themselves, but also looking at what are healthy relationships and how do we deal with trauma And if it's taken us so long and so many generations to start talking about what has happened in our homes and in our communities, how can we be courageous enough to to heal from that pain and to get the support that we need so that we're not in violent situations or codependent situations? And so there's other approaches. Now, this is this is all interconnected with the work that we're doing for sexual assault prevention, for domestic violence prevention. You know, what we're seeing when our children are removed from home, what we're seeing when our children are put into the system. And it really goes back to how can we acknowledge what has happened, but also create like healing spaces. Because the only resource that we've had in the past, and it's also been like conflated as a Navajo teaching, which I think it was just because it was like a survival teaching, was just to forget about it and move on. And for so many generations, that's what families did. They forgot or they tried to forget that they were forcibly removed from their land and taken to Huelte or or the Long Walk. They tried to forget or didn't talk about the assault, sexual assaults that were happening. They didn't want to talk about how their children were taken to boarding school and, you know, the loss that that child felt and the loss that that parent felt. And it's just always, okay, move on, move on. Don't talk about it. Just move on. And so we're we're now in a situation where we know how trauma stays in our body, in our minds, and and we could now see how that's manifest into our communities. So we're not only reclaiming our relatives who are missing, we're also reclaiming our our communities and not allowing outsiders to dictate what our communities should look like or how we should heal and to to help one another. And that also includes our relatives who identify as LGBTQI. And I think in our stories and having these conversations where maybe there was silence in the past, I always say that silence was so deafening because physically it manifested. Physically, individuals were hurt by that. And so that no longer works. And so now we're going to create safe spaces where we can learn how to heal, where we can learn to connect with one another, where we can learn to to understand how how this system impacts our community and why we, we're in such dire need for all of this healing. And so our land reflects that, our animals reflect that, how heavy winds have come in and how the climate and the seasons have changed. We're now recognizing this. And once you know it, you can no longer unsee it. And so now we have these change agents, fierce aunties in our communities that are willing to come together and activate for our families. And it's it's beautiful to be part of this movement. It's painful. But I also know that I want my children and my grandchildren and the next generations to 
to live here in their homelands and feel safe. The words spoken by Delicate Crody are so powerful and painful, as well as the words spoken by the other guests on the show. And as we come to the end of episode one, I ask you, the listener, to please share this episode with a friend to increase awareness about the MMIW crisis. In this episode, we dove into the factors around the MMIW crisis, and in the second episode, we will hear from survivors and learn a little bit more about data. Now, at the end of the day, data is stories. And these are the stories of survivors, the stories of relatives, and the stories of the people involved in uh, helping to find and bring the women home. We will also learn about how Indigenous data gathering approach differs from that of the Western world. I think the way that police officers and Western society gathers data is different from that of Indigenous cultures. And I'm going to have a few people who specialize in data gathering from an Indigenous uh, perspective, uh, tell you a little bit about it. It's uh, very, very interesting, and um, it'll help people understand a little bit more about all the factors that are involved when it comes to logging in the cases and also trying to figure out what happened to the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Have a wonderful day. Please spread the word, and uh, keep your loved ones close. Wait.